Our sermon text comes from Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. It reads like this, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. That would be for a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you would give us persistence in our faith. I ask that you would help us when we struggle to believe your word. When we struggle with your response to trust you even still. Build faith by the preaching of your word tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but I would imagine uh, most of us at some point or another have had a moment where if we have faith, we felt like it's being tested. I mean, a time where you began to wonder if God was even there or if your prayers were just sort of aimless words hitting the ceiling. That kind of testing of the faith. I've had that. I know many people have had that in my 10 plus years of being a pastor. I've heard those stories of people struggling with their faith. And it, in times, at some points... It's led people to walk away from the church and seemingly, at least in their minds, walk away from their faith. In our text tonight that I just read for you, a mother and uh, a mother has a daughter who is demon-possessed. And uh, by this point, she has surely tried basically everything you can do. Uh, she's called the closest thing to a psychotherapist there was at the time to find out what's wrong with her daughter because she's acting mighty strange. Perhaps she's taken her daughter to the finest doctors around. Or perhaps it's the opposite. Perhaps the mom, we don't really know anything about her. We don't know much about this woman. Perhaps her daughter, perhaps she did something that may have led her daughter into this. We just don't know. We don't know anything about this woman. But whatever it is, whatever she has sought to do to help her daughter, nothing has actually helped her. She, and so she is done trying on her own. She's just, she's had it. And then, and then she hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now he is seeking to withdraw from his ministry in Galilee for a little while, going to a known Gentile area. He's probably trying to get a little rest. If you read the biographies of Jesus in the gospel, you will find out that he doesn't get a whole lot of that, at least at the times he'd really like to have that. But she's heard about what he's done. 
She's heard that he can do miracles, how he can free people that have been enslaved to even demonic and devilish forces and how he can heal. And so she is going to go to him for help. This mom is going to go. And the only thing she apparently has left is faith. Her faith in a God that has the power to free her child from the grip of the devil's cruel hand. And I think as you'll see as we go through this story tonight, you're going to see her faith is quite incredible. It's quite impressive because, and frankly, her story here personifies for me what faith actually looks like. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What does it mean? What does it look like to have faith? How is it expressed? And I think the first thing you see is that faith looks like begging for mercy. If you look in your bulletin again or your worship folder, look at verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now let's just pick this apart a little bit. Uh, first of all, we're told that this mother is a Canaanite. If you happen to be familiar with your Old Testament, then you know that the Canaanites and the Israelites were not buddies. Um, as a matter of fact, they were so much not buddies that Israel was supposed to completely destroy the Canaanites upon their invasion of the Promised Land. They were constant enemies throughout all of Old Testament history. And so, um, thankfully, Israel um, did not uh, complete the job. And in God's providence, this Canaanite woman is a result of that. Somebody that was supposed to have been wiped out was not wiped out, and here she is. She is a complete outsider to the people of God and is well aware of the fact that she has no right to ask anything of Jesus at all. However, as much of an outsider as she is, she appears to know something about him. Upon coming to him, she refers to him by his messianic title, Son of David. She calls him Lord. Faith knows the truth about Jesus and comes to him with a heart of submission to him. Nevertheless, she is an outsider. I mean, how can she come to him? How can she pray to him when she's been separated from the church and from God's people all the way in Tyre and Sidon, this area where that was known for being ungodly? But she doesn't seem to wrestle with such things, with such questions. She is desperate enough to heal her child that she unabashedly comes to Jesus. Notice how much she identifies with her trapped trap child. She asks first for him to have mercy on her by helping her daughter. Have mercy on me by helping my daughter. She so identifies with her child's pain that when she asks for mercy for her daughter, it's as if she's asking for mercy for herself. All this to say that faith, first and foremost, doesn't come entitled to God, but comes merely on the basis basis of his mercy. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a famous story known as the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in that story, uh, very familiar probably to some of you in here, Pharisee is a good religious man. He's done everything that religious people are supposed to do. And so he walks into the temple and he thanks God for all the ways that he's been obedient. I mean, he actually does thank God. He says, thank you that you didn't make me like disobedient people and like scoundrels. And, you know, especially like that tax collector over there. Tax collector was sort of the most traitorous 
guy in Israel at the time. And so, you know, the Pharisee is thanking God for all of his righteousness. Tax collector comes near the temple, can't bring himself to look up, just beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. In Greek, it's the sinner. And Jesus says, you know who went home good in the eyes of God? The tax collector. The one who comes to God solely pleading for mercy is the one that God hears. So, it may catch us by surprise when we hear a story like the Pharisee and tax collector, when we hear God say that he is not going to turn away from cries for mercy, it might catch us by surprise in this story when we read of Jesus, but he did not answer her a word. He didn't answer her a word. Even with a right request, faith is initially only given silence. Now, at this point, when initially it seems as if God has no interest in our request, when it seems as if he's even ignoring us, we may be tempted to forget the whole thing. Maybe you've prayed for something a few times, and it hasn't been answered the way that you were hoping for it to be answered. And so you just sort of put it off to the side. I think that's our tendency. But faith, faith doesn't do such a thing. Faith gets all naggy. Because as you read over and over throughout this story, we are given the sense that this mom just refuses to give up for her child. In, in Greek, the word for cried out that it says she's doing is imperfect in Greek. And that, that tells us that she didn't just ask Jesus once but kept on. Hey, have mercy, have mercy, stop, have mercy on my daughter. Hey, stop, Lord, son of David, son of David. I mean, to the point where the disciples are just, they're super annoyed with her. The disciples, incidentally, come off as like the most <laughs> incompassionate people in this passage because she's crying out for the good of her daughter that is demon-possessed. And what do the disciples say? Lord, she's annoying Lord, please make her be quiet. Shh. Like, do a miracle that makes her shut up. Please. Send her away, for she is crying out after us. I love this. I love this picture of persistent faith. She doesn't care if the disciples think she, that she's a nag. And we all know this. When it comes to the welfare of a mom's child, moms can indeed nag. Because a mom's love won't stop. Faith won't stop nagging. I can remember growing up in my home, it was just uh, me and my brother and then my, my parents. And whenever my mom would try to get me or my brother's attention, I mean, she was just, she was an expert at this. I mean, she, she would stand in front of the TV and she would say, hey, I need you, you know, whatever the test, hey, I need, remember when you get home from school today, let out the dog. And of course, like, I'm still trying to look around her to see, like, the, you know, third of an inch strip of TV. That's enough to draw my attention away. And she goes, what did I say? And I said, what? What did I say? And then she turned off the TV. You need to take out the dog when I get home. Okay. Ah. 
And she would nag and nag and nag, but she would get my attention. She would get our attention. That's what faith looks like when coming to God. Just won't stop. Won't stop. It just keeps on coming. Keeps on nagging. God invites this. In Luke 18, one of the great illustrations that he gives about what uh, the life of prayer looks like is of a persistent widow who keeps on begging a judge to give her justice. And he says that is what faith looks like. At the very end of the parable, as he's talking about the persistence of this widow, he compares persistence with faith. He says it's one and the same thing. And so, since this mom in the story is being so persistent to the point even when the disciples are now begging Jesus to just do something to help her, you would certainly expect then that Jesus is going to hop right to it. I mean, this is Jesus. This is what he does. He's got to hop to it now. But again, he does not. Rather, his response is shockingly, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this was true. This was true. He did, Jesus' mission was primarily to the Israelites. He did not come seeking to fix the whole world at the time, but merely his people. That's true. What he said was theologically accurate, even if it does seem distant and uncaring and cruel to us. Is this, is this the way? That God deals with you? You're not included? I don't have time for you? It may seem like it sometimes. Maybe God has more important matters to deal with than your problems. But faith refuses to accept it. And so faith looks like worshiping Jesus. So this woman comes and kneels before Jesus. Lord, help me. Help me. Help me. She comes knowing her place. She kneels before Jesus in act of absolute worship. When God seems to be saying no, when he seems to be far off and silent, when he tests faith, even saying, I don't have time, what do you do? Kneel down, worship, and place your hands into his life, or place your life into his hands all the more. After all, what is worship but an act of placing your very life into the hands of your Savior anyway? What is worship except acknowledging that you don't have control and he does? Even when all you seem to hear from God is no, faith persists that it will drain a yes out of that no. It is just, it's going to get it. For worship is a sweet sound of the Lord's ears. Help me. Oh, how much we have to go through in our life before we're willing to acknowledge our great need for help. My five-year-old Lincoln is constantly thinking that he can do everything on his own, which usually leads to breaking stuff. 
And it takes him forever. It takes him so long because he wants to do everything himself. Before he finally says, will you help me? And usually by that time, there's a few tears. You know, there's, like, there's agony. He has to, and every time he knows, he knows at any moment he can come to dad. He can come to mom and say, can you do this for me? No, no, sir. He is not going to do that. Oh, how much pain we have to go to so much in our life before we'll just simply say, Lord, help me. How about starting off every day with those words? If you can't utter a prayer because you feel that God's not listening to you or God's ignoring you, if you, even, if you feel disappointed with God, if your faith seems to be weak, can you say those words every morning? Can you say the words, Lord, help me. I can't do this. A while back, I watched a movie called 127 Hours. It came out a few years ago, so I have the right to ruin the ending for you, which I'm going to do right now. Um, the story centers around a very independent uh, young mountain climber and hiker named Aaron Ralston. Now, when I say independent, I mean the movie goes out of its way to show how independent he is. He ignores phone calls. He ignores his loving parents. Uh, he ignores his friends and lives for himself and the adventure that comes with it. And so there he is alone camping in the wilderness. That's what he's doing. He's camping in the wilderness, and he's going to wake up the next day, and he's going to go do some rock climbing in some very obscure uh, mountains. And, and he's going to do all sorts of daredevil tactics because, you know, he's good enough, he's smart enough, and he can do everything on his own. When in the midst of the day, he falls into a crack in one of the mountains, and his hand is stuck can't move. I mean, he just can't. Like, he falls in between this crack, and his hand just gets stuck so much that there's nothing he can do to move it. I mean, he tries moving the rock, but breaking the rock, chipping away at the rock, there's nothing he can do. I mean, this is a gigantic set of boulders that his hand is stuck in. And this is a true story, by the way. So he can't move. And this goes on for days. Days can't do anything. And he realizes, he soon realizes, like, I'm trapped here. If I don't get out of this, no one can hear me where I'm at. I'm so far away from everyone else. I basically only have one option. So he breaks his hand. And then cuts his hand. And runs as fast as he can, bleeding, trying to search someone. And the great, the, the director does such a good job of this because uh, he, when he's running out, the main emphasis, the main thing in the story is not the fact that he cut off his hand. Like, that doesn't get the main emphasis. The biggest crescendo of the film is when he finally comes across other people and he yells at the top of his lungs, Help me! I need help! And the whole point of the movie flashes to him thinking about his girlfriend and his parents and all these people that he's ignored to be independent and realizing that he needs them. He needs help. He can't fix himself. 
That's how faith comes to Jesus. It is not faith in your intentions. It is not faith in your abilities. It is not faith even in your faith. It is looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and yelling all the time, help. I need help. John Zoll, a pastor and author, has one of my favorite quotes. He says, God's office is at the end of your rope. God's office is at the end of your rope. Nevertheless, in this shocking story, it appears that even this cry that always is guaranteed to get God's attention in Scripture doesn't seem to work. Even now when she says, Lord, help me, Jesus responds, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now again, technically speaking, since Jesus had come primarily for Israel, this response was correct. He was under no obligation to heal this mom's child. He didn't have to do it. But faith doesn't stop. So Jesus responds even to her worship of him with what sounds like an insult. I mean, you know, when we think of dogs, we think of our modern American way of dealing with dogs, which is to exalt them almost to human-like status with our love and adoration for them. I got a dog, I understand. My kids love them. My dog probably more than they love me. Uh, you know, they, our dog is treasured and loved, and it, we all do it. But back then, in the Middle East, no, 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 no. A dog was not a friendly term. Jesus was calling her a deeply what would be seen as an insulting term. It was a name for a Gentile. It sounds like she's even being judged by Jesus, but faith will not stop. She's going to find a way to save her kid from the grips of the devil no matter what. And what, she, what will she do? Well, <laughs> she will receive these insults, she, these perceived insults at least. She will accept them. She will say yes. She will agree. She doesn't dispute that, yes, she's a dog. Faith will be tested and wrung out to dry. And yet even still it says, even dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Fine, I'm a dog. Just give me the crumbs. Just give me, just, just give me crumbs. Oh, what wonderful faith that continues to come even when... It appears to be hearing a no. When the whole world says no, even when Jesus appears to be saying no, faith still comes to him hearing the yes of his word. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote of this response, Is not this a masterly stroke as a reply? She catches Christ with his own words. He compares her to a dog and she concedes it and asks nothing more than he let her be a dog as he himself judged her to be. Where will Christ now take refuge? He is caught. Does that sound a little irreverent to say that? But no. There's a deeply significant spiritual point here that needs to be comprehended. Luther explains, like when Jesus rebukes this poor woman calling her a dog, when we feel in our conscience that God rebukes us as sinners and judges us unworthy of the kingdom of heaven, when we feel like we're going to experience hell and we think we are lost forever, that is just the time. That we catch God in his own words. When we admit that we 
Our dog saying, Lord, it is true, I am a sinner and not worthy of your grace, but still you have promised sinners forgiveness and you have not come to call the righteous but to save sinners, then must God, according to his own judgment, have mercy upon us. He has to. He has to. And then Christ completely opens his heart to her. She is now no dog, but she's a child of Israel. Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly, saved. And the same thing happens to you sitting here today. When your sins are thrown in your face, and even when it appears that all God may have for you is a no, when you feel that you just might be condemned, you, might, you can say, yes, I admit that, I deserve that, I don't deserve grace, but Lord Jesus, you have lived perfectly in my place, you have died the death my sins deserve, you have risen from the dead for me, and Lord, you have promised that by this work of yours, my sins are paid for and covered, you have promised that I will be forgiven, so give me those crumbs, give me those crumbs. So at the beginning of my sermon, I asked if your faith had ever been tested. Let me close with a little snippet from a friend of mine's article, a guy named Chad Bird, who um, I have really benefited from. Talked about a time in an article not long ago in which his faith was just severely tested. And here's what he said coming out of it, sort of getting out of the test. He said, who I ended up being was not a better Christian, whatever that means. Not a better person, not a stronger person, but simply this. A man who grasps more fully that in and of myself, I am nothing. I have zilch to offer God. I have nothing of my own to claim except my faults. I have no strength, no righteousness, no moral pedigree to wow heaven. I am Jonah sinking beneath the waves. I am Lazarus dead and decomposing in a grave. I am a corpse in Ezekiel's valley of dry bones. I have and am nothing. And come to find out, once we realize that, be it through divorce or any other suffering in life, we are in the perfect position to gain everything. Then our Lord, who created everything out of nothing, says, Now I have you exactly where I want you. Because the only material that God really works with is nothing. He has to bring us to an end of ourselves so that then he can bring us the glory of Christ Jesus for ourselves. We die in him and life returns just like it did for this woman and her faith. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? Oh, Father, help us to trust your word even when it seems that life is contradicting your word or challenging your word. Oh, God, when our faith is weak, strengthen us by your spirit. When we don't display the kind of faith that this woman had, Holy Spirit, convict us. And build faith in us. Help us to go to the word that creates faith. Father, we thank you that you are patient with us. 
And that Jesus does indeed only bring us to these points like he did with this woman because he knows what we need in order to give us exactly what is good for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.